Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on, let's go. Yes, you, come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy, nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy, your source of health information every Wednesday. We're a little bit over a week since the Houston Astros won the World Series. That's my team, y'all. I'm not the biggest baseball fan, but I'm definitely an Astros fan. Shout out to H-Town. I love my Astros. And if you're watching this episode later on YouTube, you'll see me in some of my fresh Astros gear. So once again, shout out to the World Series champion, Houston Astros. We're on part four of the series, I'm Too Young for This Ish. And this week I have on third year medical student, Lauren Brown. Lauren was diagnosed with hydrocephalus as an infant and ulcerative colitis as a teenager. Hydrocephalus is a condition when someone has too much fluid building up in cavities in your brain called ventricles. When the fluid becomes too much, patients need a shunt which helps remove the excess fluid. Ulcerative colitis is inflammation in the inner part of your colon. Sometimes the inflammation can be so bad that it requires removal of part of your colon. Well, guess who has a shunt and part of her colon removed? That's right, today's guest, Lauren Brown. We'll discuss both of her conditions, so this will be a two-part episode. In the first part, we'll discuss hydrocephalus, and in the second part, we'll discuss her ulcerative colitis diagnosis. We will discuss how both of these conditions affected her both mentally and physically, especially during her adolescent years. And before we go on call, make sure you follow me on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all those social media platforms at underscore Dr. Randy. And you can check out this episode on YouTube at Dr. Randy. Just go on YouTube, search for Dr. Randy. So let's go on call with Indianapolis's, aka Naptown's own, Lauren Brown. Welcome back, healthy people, to another episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. I am your host, Dr. Randy. If you're confused why I have on this Houston Astros hat, we just won the World Series yesterday. So I'm still happy. I'm still excited. Normally, I don't do this podcast with a hat on, but I'm still in championship mode. So I'm going to rock all this gear for a couple of weeks. I'm going to go to work tomorrow with my jersey on. So shout out to the Houston Astros world champions. They can't talk bad about us no more. They can't talk about us and and maybe cheated last time. Maybe, but we still won. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. But today I have on Lauren Brown. How are you doing, Lauren? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So Lauren is from Naptown. She's a professional ballerina and she's also in her third year of medical school. <laughs> So how's med school going right now for you? It's going. It's going. I'm taking it one day at a time. <laughs> is it everything you thought it would be at the beginning or is it a lot more? I I would say a lot more. Actually, yeah, I would definitely say a lot more now that you asked. I, my journey has been something else. It has been crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a lot more. 
Right, right. I can imagine. So everybody thinks it's hard, but when you get in it, you realize actually how hard it is. It's like, ooh, this is a lot. This is a lot. So I wanted to have Lauren on for the installment of I'm Too Young for This Ish. So we've had a couple of people on thus far. We've had my friend Angela Graves talking about her thyroid cancer. We have my best friend Emery talking about his thyroid issues with Graves' disease. And so I wanted to have Lauren on to share her story. So she was diagnosed with hydrocephalus as a baby, and she was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis as a teenager, correct? Correct. Right, right. So I wanted to kind of approach this like, I don't know if you watch Marvel movies like that or anything, but just kind of an origin story type deal. So we'll just kind of talk about your origin story for you. So you were diagnosed with hydrocephalus as a baby. So I'm assuming people had to tell you what happened on early on in life. So kind of tell us what happened when you were a baby. Um, So when I was diagnosed as a baby, my mom always explained it to me. Um, I'm a February baby, so and I'm from Indiana, so it's cold there, and it's usually snowing. And so she told me that when they were in the hospital, I was being discharged. I was ready to go. She was like, I had you in your little snowsuit. You were all zipped up. Like, you were in the car seat. We were going to walk out. And she said, just one doctor looked at your eyes and was looking, saying, you know, something's wrong. Something's not right. You know, her eyes don't look normal. Um, and of course, a lot of it comes together. Like I'm in med school now, high size 2020, all that. So I had sunset eyes, which is something we learn mm. about, like with right increased cerebral pressure and everything. So she said. For, so for those up. who don't know, what is what is sunset eyes? How would you describe sunset eyes? Yeah, I think the best way I would describe it is like, when you look at someone's eyes and it's like, you see the whites of their eyes and then kind of like the colored part that's like in the middle. Mine was, it wasn't in the middle. They were like lowered. So it literally looked like a sunset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she said the doctor who looked at my eyes and recognized that said, now, hold on, hold on. I, I need to go get somebody else to come and see your daughter. And it was a neuro- neurologist, lo and behold. And so, yeah, she said, um, and my mom, um, telling her business too. So she had me when she was like 21, I was like her first baby. And, you know, the neurologist comes in and she's kind of like, let me drop all this in your lap real quick. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was diagnosed with hydrocephalus and they kind of explained everything where it's like, you're, you're going to need brain surgery, period. Like no matter what. So we didn't really have any options. Um, and then my mom also explains to me how, which obviously I didn't like, don't have that memory, but my first brain surgery was at three weeks old. Um, I couldn't really get it any sooner. And so at the end of the day, I was actually discharged and literally stayed at home for three weeks until I had my first brain surgery. And I knowing how I normally feel when I am sick and like need to go in and have a brain surgery, it's awful. And so I can just imagine I probably cried and screamed and wailed that whole three weeks. So three weeks old having your first brain surgery. I don't know what it was like for your mom to sit home with you for three weeks, knowing that you were going to have brain surgery in three weeks. 
Has she talked about that waiting game, what it was like for her? Right. One thing she did mention was, like we're saying, I, I'm like a tiny little baby and then I'm sick and they're telling me what all I have to do. And it's like, and now, but there's nothing else to really do, but go home. And she's just kind of like, well, wait, what you mean? Like, you know, take this little baby home. Like I'm not a doctor. And she told me that, that she thought to herself, you know, what if something happens? Like, you know, like I, I feel like newborns are already kind of fragile. Like no one just, you know, catches the newborn and throws them around. <laughs> but like, On top of that, I feel like in her mind, she just felt like, you know, what if something goes wrong while she's at home waiting? Mm -hmm. So you have your first surgery. How did that go from what you were told? Yes, it went well. Um, And one thing that my mom always tells me, um, which kind of helped the path that I'm on now, um, once I was old enough to realize what I was going through, I realized I wanted to go to school and be a neurosurgeon. And so my mom always explained to me how my first neurosurgeon kind of said to them, you know, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. And honestly, the brain surgery that I have out of all of them is pretty much the quickest one. It's in and out, probably an hour max if nothing goes wrong. And so he says, you know, I'm going to go in, do the surgery, and I'll come back out. But he kind of explained to my family, I'm going to do what I was trained to do. And besides that, you know, it's going to land on whoever, what y'all believe in. So he pretty much was like, so y'all need to pray about it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've almost never heard that before, especially from a surgeon. I don't feel like we're, we're really gung-ho about, you know, we need to take this to God. You know <laughs> what I mean? And it's like, we need to take it to the, to the OR. <laughs> so like that shook me a little bit. You know what I mean? Like throughout my life, I have thought that very often. Like if God didn't want me walking this path, he wouldn't have me waking up from these surgeries. Because mm-hmm. we know any surgery, anything can happen. Just being put under anesthesia, anything can happen. Right. So what were you kind of told was the goal of the first surgery? Did they put a shun in? Were they trying to release some pressure? What was goal of surgery number one? Yeah, the surgeon was just like, she's going to need a shunt. So, yep, I've had a shunt since I was three weeks old. Um, And normally when I explain it to people who, you know, aren't doctors, I've been explaining it, you know, my whole life. And just got to med school like three years ago. So I would just kind of tell them, I'd be like, you know, I have hydrocephalus. Um, it's, it's called water on the brain. Like your brain's just filled with fluid. And so I would tell them, you know, I have a shunt. It traces from my brain pretty much down to my abdomen in order to drain the fluid because it can't kind of, it can't stay in your brain. And I would explain to people that before basically shunts were invented, that if you were born with hydrocephalus, your head would basically just get three times bigger than your body and you would pass away. Do you know offhand how young were people passing away? Were they usually passing away as a baby? Right. I actually am not 100% sure of the exact, like mm-hmm. you're saying, time frame, but I do think it was pretty quickly. Okay. So, so you've had how many total surgeries for hydrocephalus? Six. 
Six total. Six. Starting at age three weeks and approximately when were the next ones after that? Yeah, so um, after my first one, there was a scheduled one because doctors know that as you grow, so you need a new shunt that's longer. So they were able to schedule one. Um I think about in, in middle school, if I'm not mistaken, either in middle school or right before I got mm-hmm. to middle school. And I always explain to people how it's like weird to talk about because people are just kind of like, well, what now? Like, are you okay now? Like, are you going to have to have another surgery? Like, what's going on? And the best I can say is just since a shunt is a man-made object, it's not perfect. And we can't say, you know, this is going to last forever. It's going to be flawless or whatever else. So after my first shunt revision where I got the new longer shunt, I feel like it was something maybe every year. The next year it malfunctioned. And that's, it sounds like, okay, what's that mean? It malfunctioned. But sometimes they can literally just stop working. And one time um, it like, it broke. It's kind of like, what's the difference between a malfunction and it breaking? But like, it kind of, there's a piece that pieces together and the piece actually came off. Like it was disconnected. It's like, okay, so it's not draining. Um, so a few different things happened. Um, one of my last ones, I think this might've been four or five. Um, so the fluid drains into my abdomen and it kind of reabsorbs and kind of does the whole path over and over again. So I ended up with an infection in my abdomen um, where the doctor explained it like, think of like if you have a pimple or something. So it's just an infection, some sort of bug. But what it did was the lining of my abdomen, it was no longer absorbing all the fluid that was draining from the tube. So it was leaving my head, going to my stomach and just kind of sitting there to the point where I literally looked nine months pregnant and it was all fluid from my brain. How, yep. how old were you at this time? Oh, it had to be middle school, just getting out of middle school. And I think mm-hmm. most was like not that many, it's like six, seven and eight. So I was either in <laughs> seventh or eighth grade. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And so yeah, I don't want you walking around like you nine months pregnant in middle school. Yeah, like my stomach was huge, and it like it did like take us a minute to even figure out what was going on. I think at first uh, the fluid was just kind of weighing me down, so like I was kind of walking weird and was saying, you know, oh my back hurts, my back hurts, my back hurts, but it was literally just because the fluid was weighing me down, almost like like we're saying if you were pregnant and like women are like, okay, my back hurts, but. Yeah, we went into the hospital and they figured everything out. Ended up draining. First, they drained all the fluid that was in my abdomen, which, oh my gosh, it was so much. Like, I don't remember the exact number, but it was a lot. Like, your abdomen can hold a lot. Um, And they actually, (laughs) when they realized what was wrong, they told us what was wrong. So I would end up needing a new shunt. But I, because I had an infection, they had to treat that as well. So they had to, like, had to get my life together. So they actually ended up draining my shunt from basically, it was like externally. So they kind of drilled a little hole and like drained from like here. Like my mom like was like, you look like a little unicorn. But like I needed time for them to treat the infection. So it was like they drained the fluid from the outside first, you know, dealt with the infection. Then I got my new shunt. 
And I explained to people how at first my shunt was just kind of like, what does this mean? It was like in my peritoneum, but it's just kind of like, it's just free folding in my abdomen, like next to the organs. So after <laughs> infection, the doctors were kind of like, okay, we don't kind of want to put it in the same place. So they moved it into my gallbladder. So now it drains from my brain to my gallbladder. Wow. Wow. That's a lot going on, especially during middle school, having that. How was that going through all of that as a child in middle school? Right. I feel like, gosh, um, I feel like for brain surgeries, I actually just got used to it. Like everyone says that they're like, you've been through so much, especially being so young and you're just, you know, so strong, so strong, so strong. And you know, when people say that, like, you know, you never know how strong you are until you have to be. Um, and one of the things that I just remember is that because I, over time, having that many brain surgeries, in my mind, I was just kind of like, okay, well, I'm used to, I know the drill. Like, I go in, you know, get it and shut, and I come out. So over time, I was just like, okay, it is what it is. <laughs> Right, because your your normal is different from the average person's. Like when I hear your story and think about your story, it makes me kind of think about what was that initial conversation between you and your mom when she explained to you what happened to you when you were three weeks old and what things that you would go through. It had to be some kind of realization like early on you five or six or seven having that conversation. Do you remember that conversation and how did it go? I actually don't remember that conversation, but I do remember, um, and like you're saying, I'm I'm young, like I'm a kid, so she probably explained it as best she could, but then I just remember that since the first surgery was like scheduled, we could plan for it, it wasn't really an emergency, and she kind of just said, okay, we'll plan for it, and we'll do some things, and I remember her throwing this party for me, like, you know, kind of like something you do for a child, yeah, to like keep them calm or do what you need to mm-hmm. do. And so, yeah, I think besides that second surgery, like all the other ones were emergencies. <laughs> so mm-hmm. she could plan mm-hmm. for that better. Mm-hmm. So emergency surgeries, were you ever scared during these emergency surgeries? Um, I think so. And I say that because, in my mind, like being rolled back to the OR, I just feel like, you know, okay, I got to do what I got to do. So, you know, I'm okay. And honestly, um, I definitely thought about this. My very last surgery that I had, honestly, at the end of the day, I, re- I either get the surgery or I die. So, you know, like which one do I choose? But I feel like every time I'm on my bed and they like roll me to the OR that at the very end, right before they put you to sleep, that there's always, you know, one of the nurses or one of the, someone who's in the OR is always like looking down on me going, don't worry, we're going to take good care of you. Don't worry, we're going to, like they're saying it in such a way that I'm just like, maybe I do look kind of anxious. And like, in my (laughs) mind, I think I'm not, but like, they see my heart rate going up. So Mm -hmm. Heart rate going up, legs shaking over there. A little thug tear coming down. I'm good, y'all. I'm good. Like, we're going to take good care of you. Good care of you. I'm not nervous at all. 
Right. <laughs> so, so as we kind of talk about this, and you mentioning that all of this occurring when you're a child and middle school, how did this affect you, kind of with school, interacting with your friends? How how did that kind of inter like your condition affect you with that? Yeah, believe it or not, I was actually really good at school, and hindsight being twenty twenty, like I I was good at school, so I liked it, but I also I probably use school to take my mind off of a lot of, you know, things about my illness. But I always just remember, you know, if ever I was sick or in the hospital, I would say, you know, I need my assignments. Can someone bring them to me? I need to, you know, catch up and stay on it. And I can't say that, you know, being sick or being diagnosed with an illness that my closest friends for the longest time knew all about it. Like I, you could tell, you know, who I was close to because they could rattle it off to you. Like, yeah, she has this, she's gone through this and all of that. Um, and I, I remember not to segue us into it, but when I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, that was in high school and that was my senior year. And even through the surgeries, I still graduated with like a 4.3 on a 4.0 scale. Like I just, mm-hmm. It was probably both like, okay, I like school. I want to do well, but it actually probably helped keep my mind off of everything. Okay. And so one of my earlier guests that I had on, she talked about alopecia and the support groups that she had. Did you have any kind of support groups that you work with currently or in the past that you were a part of? Um, in the past, not so much, but now I actually, I found a group, um, and there's actually a group called, um, adults living with hydrocephalus. And so, yeah, I signed up for that and we like get emails and they normally do try to have like a zoom meeting where you can just talk about anything, ask questions and discuss. So that was pretty cool. Okay, that's what's up. So I'll put that information in the show description. So if somebody wants to kind of get that and need to send it to someone that they'll have. So your last surgery, what was the reason behind that one? And how old were you when you had your most recent surgery? Uh, My most recent was a shunt revision. I had it on November 29th of 2020. So that is very recent. Yeah. Were you starting to have some symptoms around that time period that caused you to have the surgery? Yes. Um, and like you're saying, it was not only very recent, but huh, the times are so different. <laughs> what a time to be alive. So <laughs> normally my symptoms are definitely a headache. Um, usually if my the pressure in my head gets too high, I have vomiting. And I remember due to COVID. And we actually made this joke a lot before I had surgery that, you know, everything's COVID. You can come in with your leg chopped off. They'd be like, oh, you have COVID. Everything was COVID. <laughs> so <laughs> when I when I was at home, I was sick at first to the point where um, the first time I had like nausea and vomiting, my mom did say, you know, hey, go grab your COVID test just so we can make sure, you know, because that's a symptom. Um, and then... I I think this time around, I didn't really, I didn't have the normal type of headaches I have. Um, And I don't know if that's over time. I've just, my body's gotten used to it or it's changed to the point where like, we just don't even feel this pain anymore. Because normally if I have a headache and I call it a shunt headache, because I mean, 
You can have a headache for any reason. But normally if mm-hmm. I have a headache and I need a new shot, I'm literally in the fetal position crying. Like nothing stops it. I know if I take pain meds, if I go to sleep, if I eat, drink anything, you know how you like, I'll try everything before. Yeah. Like is it a caffeine headache or what's going on? So nothing helps it. So I know to go to the hospital. So this time I didn't really have a headache like that, but I was, did have nausea and vomiting. So I took the COVID test and of course it was negative. And so I think it was maybe a week later, um, nausea and vomiting one more time. And at one point, I think I was just projectile vomiting nonstop. I didn't even have anything left in me. I was just over the toilet, dry heaving. And so, yeah, that's pretty much when we knew um, my mom drove me to the ER and she did want to, she was like, hey, I want to make this clear. Like when we get in here, because we kind of both did the same thing. She said, please, when you walk up to the desk, tell them like, these are hydrocephalus symptoms. May I see a neurosurgeon? Because, you know, they're going to be like, Headache, nausea, vomiting, and a fever. Like, <laughs> no, let's get you some COVID meds. And mm. bless her heart, I remember the hospital that day, like right at that time, because I think they were going back and forth between like visiting and not and all that. And there were no visitors. And she pretty much had to drop me off at the door. And I know that she was just like, nah, this can't be happening. <laughs> so. <laughs> I went in and I told them exactly that. I was saying, you know, like we're saying, I've lived with hydrocephalus my whole life. And I'm like, I know my symptoms. And so I told the front desk and they did get the team on board. They called the neurosurgeon. Um, I think it actually was a resident who checked me out at first. So they were like, all right, let's work you up and see what we got here. And then at the very end, they were like, okay, you're going to have to tap your shunt. Now we know you know the drill. And when they tap your shunt, they basically stick a needle where your shunt is placed in your head to see if fluid comes out. So the resident did that, and he was saying, you know, you know, if I can't get any fluid out, I you probably know what that means. And I'm like, yeah, I know what that means. And by the time I got to the ER, I think we got there maybe in the afternoon or late evening. And so he was like, you know, I can't get any fluid. So let me go talk to the surgeon. And they were telling me, they're like, okay, they're going to put you on the schedule. So by then it was nighttime. Um, and they were telling me that the surgeon, they said, okay, we had somebody coming with a brain bleed. So he was working on that. And once he finished, he actually was like, okay, well, I'll just take you now that I'm done with the brain bleed. I literally think I had that surgery at two in the morning. It was like, back in my room by like five in the morning. Yeah. And I remember in recovery, I, when I woke up, I opened my eyes and like the nurses were there and everything to watch you. And I just look over and I said, did someone call my mom? Did someone call my mom? Cause I like, I knew. Yeah. She probably freaking out, especially like if you're not there. And thank goodness, like bless it. That hospital was amazing because the surgeon actually called my mom when he was done to at least say, you know, I'm done. Like, you don't have to, you know, rest easy. Like, she made it out of surgery. But, yeah, I figured. I was like, you know, she's not in the waiting room. There's no one to, like, go to her and be like, well, she's at least in recovery now. But they did mm-hmm. call her and talk to her. And, yeah, she was she was happy. And I remember, especially with it being COVID times, that, whew, if you didn't have to be in the hospital, they didn't want you in there. Because if you just stay in the hospital, yeah, you're going to just get COVID. So I got that new shunt and the doctor is like, I just need one more scan to make sure she's good. 
I was discharged the next day. Yeah, they're just trying to get people yeah. in and out. But that, I know that had to be wild for your mom. Anybody, especially during when COVID peak times, when you're dropping somebody off who has COVID and you can't go in there with them. Um, one of my other guests, she talked about how she had to drop her husband off when he had COVID symptoms and his oxygen level was dropping. And luckily with us in medicine, we can text somebody and find somebody who may be in there, but it's even harder with like somebody like in your mom, I'm assuming your mom's not in medicine and it's hard to like have somebody to contact and just like, is, is my daughter okay? Mm -hmm. You're right. Yeah. So that's good that the surgeon was able to communicate and do that extra step. Like, how was that for you in those, how many days was it? Like three, four days? How was it like being there by yourself during this time period? Um, Actually, funny story. Um, So I was only there for roughly a day. um, And like I was saying, at that time, they were kind of going back and forth with the visiting. So the they had just changed it. So basically half the hospital thought you could have visitors, half didn't. So, and so my mom was telling me the same thing. Like, no, I think I could come at nine in the morning. I think I could come at nine in the morning. And I, even I said, I said, okay. And by then I was even up and at nine, I was texting her going, I don't see you here in my room. And so she had to come in the room and tell me I was going girl. And I, I can't even say, you know, We'll do anything. So she slid in through the hospital. So she said she got to the hospital and they were telling her, like, ma'am, you cannot. And so but she was explaining to them, like, I was told by all these people that, you know, I could come at nine, that's visiting hours, blah, blah, blah. And of course, it's nobody's fault. Like, it wasn't her fault. And it probably wasn't the person's fault who told her because they probably really didn't know. I think they had just changed you know, everything around. And whatever she said, I think she said something like, can I just go up and see her for a second or drop something off? I know she did have things for me. Like, can you bring me an outfit or whatever else? So she came up at nine o'clock and came in the room and was telling me I can't even be here. And I was like, oh my gosh. So (laughs) we talked about that. She was like, yeah, so let me just sit your bag here, take my coffee and like you're saying, go back to the house and wait and just wait for you to come home. So it wasn't, it actually wasn't too terrible, um, especially since I wasn't there that long. But yeah, it's never, it's never really fun just to sit at the hospital by yourself. Mm-hmm. Black moms will find a way. She talking about, I got to drop her, her charger, her phone charger. She needs that. Yeah. Yeah. Man, mm-hmm. I'm a physician. Phys- <laughs> I'm a physician. <laughs> right. And I was having, yes, I was having trouble. I went to go check on one of my patients one time who was in the hospital during COVID and they was not trying to let me in. I'm like, I'm here to check on my patient. I got a badge. I know the patient name, date of birth. Mm -mm -mm -mm. You got to get permission from. Oh, man. So kind of while we're on the subject talking about your mom, um, during your whole health and your whole history, has there ever been a time where she had to advocate for you in some type of way of fashion or you had to be an advocate for yourself where you feel like you weren't getting the proper treatment or she wasn't feeling like that? Right. I I feel like definitely, especially since I was just a, like a kid the whole time, except pretty much my last surgery. So she was definitely always my advocate. Um, 
specifically, I feel like I've always gotten the care I needed. Um, but I do remember when I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, there were like a few different um, treatment options. And this is pretty much right before I turned 18. So I was still, you know, she had to make the decisions for me and all that. But she helped out because I think one of the one of the options was like, like at first you can try steroids and see if that works. But after that, it's kind of like immunosuppressants and you know how those go. Like you can get sick at any time and all that. And I think one, the doctor was explaining to my mom that, you know, we want to try this and this is how it works, yada, yada. But he, he did have to tell us like, but she could possibly get lymphoma. And I was like, I don't. I know if I don't know nothing else, I know I don't want lymphoma at all. So like Mm -hmm. that was one time that, yeah, we really had to take a second and think about this. Like you're saying, what are we going to do? What are our options? How do we, yeah. So I I ended up not doing that and and doing another, at least we had another option, another choice. Yeah. That was one area where he definitely advocated. So you've talked about your treatments for your hydrocephalus, mostly talking about the shunts. Are there any other things that you have to do diet wise, watching certain things that you eat or drink or medications that you have to take on a regular basis? Actually, there's not much else that I need to do. But the one thing it's like not have to, but like what you can't do. So I know I can't do like contact sports or anything that would like affect the shunt or be like traumatic in any way like to my head at all and um I actually have to tell people this all the time they're just like oh you're just scared so like I can't go skydiving so like any pressure change that's abrupt like that I wouldn't be able to do so I can't skydive and I can't scuba dive um don't do roller coasters yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I wouldn't advocate for you skydiving anyway. I, too much of a risk. That was a lot. So much that we have to break it up into two episodes. I hope you all enjoyed part one. If you did, please share with a friend. Also subscribe to On Call with Dr. Randy on Spotify. You can do that on Apple. You can subscribe on YouTube channel, on my YouTube channel. So just search for On Call with Dr. Randy on YouTube. And don't forget to check out drrandymd.com. You can check out that link in the description of this episode. Just click on it. Check out my website. Check out some of the products that I have on my website. If you looked at this episode on YouTube, you'll see me in a fresh white hoodie with a nice red heart on it. Just something that's real cool and nice for the wintertime. And it's on my website. Look fly. So you can order that there. But I'll see you all next week for part two of this discussion with Lauren. We'll be talking about her ulcerative colitis diagnosis. And y'all have a good week. And as always, stay healthy physically and mentally.